You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today on Stay Tuned, a bunch of miscellaneous stories about the latest developments in the world of music and entertainment. Number one, we have to talk about SoundCloud. An interesting new deal is tentatively in the works between SoundCloud and Warner Music Group. As of recording time, still all tentative, but Warner Music is proposing a model where there's this partnership with SoundCloud, and so the artists could get paid what they're calling fan-powered royalties, which basically means individual streams. The current go-to model is based on total streams, so the more streams you have total, the more money you make. This new model would actually be about individual users streaming it. A way to not be about how many public places are playing it, but about how many people are. And so instead of this pot of money being split up with the biggest chunks of the money pot going to the biggest artists, and the smallest chunks of money going to the smallest artists, this new model would just take out a dollar bill for each stream and give it to the artist. Not a dollar, but I'm just using a metaphor. I guess a better way to put it is, this model would take your $10, for example, and give it to the artist you listen to. So instead of you getting your $10 bill thrown into a pool that gets divvied up and doled out to the top earners the most, your $10 bill stays separate and split up among the artists you yourself listen to. It's a way to spread the wealth, basically. It's interesting timing because another recent headline is that SoundCloud is planning layoffs of about 20% of its staff. If that means they're reneging on this deal to save themselves more money, I don't think that's necessarily how it would work. So I would still hold out hope for this deal. I think it would be really beneficial to more underrated artists. Story 2. This was so fascinating to find out about. Apparently, there's an annual underwater music festival off the Florida Keys. It's been going on for 38 years now. 38. The songs tend to be ocean-themed, naturally. And in between songs, the speakers also play PSAs about protecting coral reefs. This Lower Keys Underwater Music Fest is where the only living coral barrier reef in the continental U.S. is located. And the speakers hang down from these boats. So I guess you just chill and pretend you're in Bikini Bottom and listen to some tunes in between ads about being nicer to your oceans. I'll link to info about it on my site. Really bizarre, but interesting. Story 3. More festival news. A new study shows that the chances of being nicer to people, of helping a stranger out, increase, as well as your sense of connectedness to your fellow humans, up to six months after attending a music festival. Studies about the increase to self-esteem and sense of community by going to social gatherings, that's not a new study, that's what religious services are, for example. But there was kind of a lack relatively of studies about specifically just secular events, and if those could have the same effect on people. 
So a study I linked to on my site in the journal called Nature Communications looked into this. This was a Yale research team with contributions from the University of Bath, U of Denver, U of Pennsylvania, and UCLA. They used Burning Man as their case study, and they also looked at, for comparison's sake, the Burning Nest, which apparently is a festival in the UK, Latitude Fest, another UK event, and two California events, the Dirty Bird Fest and Lightning in a Bottle Fest. They did field research with over 1,200 participants across the U.S. and the U.K. They also then had follow-up interviews with 2,000 new people who they hadn't interviewed in round one. So tons of people they talked to. And in total, 63% said attending the festival was a, quote, transformative experience, unquote. This was this game-changing feeling of this was a life-altering experience to be with my fellow music lovers at a festival. That was for everybody, but admittedly, it was an enhanced feeling for those under the influence of psychedelics. But the point was put summatively by Dr. Daniel Yudkin. Quote, Here we show that experiences at secular mass gatherings also have the potential to expand the boundaries of moral concern beyond one's own group. Unquote. And he cites Durkheim's collective effervescence concept, which, long story short, is basically about the human ability to come together as one, to carry out a single message, single action, to embrace this positive groupthink in some ways. A whole culture of looking out for each other could be formed. Obviously, that's not always the case, and this can turn into mob mentality. If you saw the new Woodstock doc, you know what I'm talking about, or if you just lived through it. But it could also be used for KCON, which is apples to oranges. But I'm just saying, there are festivals that create a really cool culture too. And maybe knowing that these events do have this vast potential to influence us could affect how people approach attending and what kind of impact they want to have while attending. The link was to willingness to do generous things for strangers too. So not just friends and family, but a willingness to be nicer to strangers came from going to a festival. And again, lasted for an average of six months afterwards. So just go to two festivals a year to be a good person. Next study we have to talk about. The University of Cambridge looked into different music tastes and how your personality might be affected. They quizzed over 4,000 participants on their thinking styles, then had them listen to 50 different music excerpts from a wide variety of genres. They also cite the research of BBC Lab UK and the Journal of Research of Personality, who looked at over 7,000 people. Here are some of the broad takeaways, although I will link to the study you can nerd out over and read for yourself on my site, but I like to do that for you guys. So here's what it said. Whether or not you play an instrument, your personality can be shaped by the music you like, regardless of that. Those with more sophisticated tastes were linked to more imagination, more openness, and more willingness to try new things. Extroverts were found to be better at sinning, which actually might just be maybe a reminder. Correlation might not mean causation, because the introverts probably just blanched at the thought of sinning during their interviews. I don't know, but it would be interesting if actually it's just a natural thing, that if you're a more talkative, outgoing person, you naturally sing better. It's a chicken or the egg thing, maybe. 95% of people fall into one of the three categories. Empathizers, type E, systemizers, type S, or equally falling into both categories, type B. The broadest range of music preferences, type B people. 
People who are considered type S, who have preferences for hard rock, punk, heavy metal, and or classical music, prefer intense, complex music and have a strong interest in technicalities, patterns, systems, rules, orders, interest. Not necessarily like goody two-shoes rule followers, not respect for rules, but interest in rules. Maybe bending them and breaking them, but maybe following them. But patterns, systems, rules are something they think about. Then there are the empathizers, those who prefer softer rock, R&B, mellower, lower energy songs, Actually, a specific song referenced is Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah as a favorite of theirs. They are considered to be very considerate with a strong interest in others' thoughts and emotions. Maybe that they put in music, maybe other storytelling, but true stories and just listening to people. Are you type S, E, or B? I'm thinking I'm B, but let me know what you think. Is it accurate? And if you've heard anything else about music taste correlating to personality types, feel free to let me know. But now let's move on to some really cool research from the Journal of Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. A team of University of Utah health scientists studied music's impacts on the brain in Alzheimer's patients. And they found that listening to music eases their anxiety. When music is on, certain regions started cooperating again in their brain and lit up a certain way compared to when there was just silence. This realization about how to get parts of the brain to connect again, that could really help inform future research about trying to delay this mental decline. Dr. Jeff Anderson said, quote, No one says playing music will be a cure, but it might make the symptoms more manageable, decrease the cost of care, and improve a patient's quality of life, unquote. Another senior study author, Dr. Norman Foster, said this is important because maybe music is, quote, an alternative route for communicating, unquote. There is an interesting history here. Music and studying its impacts on physical and mental healing has been studied since the 6th century BC, although actually the first official scientific study kicked off near the end of World War II upon discovering this ability for music to aid World War II veterans in their wound recovery. The very first of its kind academic program to study music therapy was founded at Michigan State University in 1944, and in 1950, the National Association for Music Therapy was founded. There's this piece of work from Harvard, Steven Pinker, who called music, quote, auditory cheesecake, unquote. He's one of those well-actually smarty pantses, and he argued, well, actually, music can't mean anything because it doesn't have the four core elements of language. It only has three of them, so therefore it cannot technically mean anything. It has the grammar, the syntax, and the phonetics, but not the semantics. I think he was so wrong there on so many levels. Maybe he should call himself auditory cheesecake. Sounds more like an insult for him. He seems to be proven wrong by this kind of thing. There's this book called Musicophilia, very, very successful, from the neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks. He's featured in that video that was quite popular when it came out called Alive Inside, a documentary where this patient opens up about how loved and better music makes him feel. And his views seem to align with the promises of this study as well. It was just one with a very small sample. However, it is a scalable experiment. They could do this with way more people, and they could have really similar results. Overall, I think it's a promising area of study, and I love the way of framing it as a new language, a new way to communicate with people. Who wouldn't want that? Another really cool discovery from Mark Temple. 
a molecular biologist from Australia, Western Sydney University. He studies DNA sequences and researches cancer treatments. He found a way to musicify DNA. He assigned notes to DNA. He basically found a way to give sounds to molecules, which make it easier to study them, easier to remember, easier to clarify. When you're looking at thousands of data points, the sounds can make that easier. He's even created his own software to convert data to sound. More history, though. The first data-to-sound conversion experiments on record are from the early 80s. David Deemer from University of California, Santa Cruz, realized that three of four DNA bases correspond with letters that are also the letters that are used as musical notes. Upon realizing this, he got to work with a group of colleagues creating these melodies around those letters. They ended up making DNA Suite a cassette with 30-ish minutes of original music based on DNA sequences in the human gene for insulin. In 1982, CBS even aired a recital, and he played the piano to this 30-minute original work. This is a great example of what I mentioned earlier about the importance of not discounting small studies because they can start a foundation that is scaled up and built upon that leads to really cool results. And this new soundtrack of DNA was a catalyst. Joel Sternheimer, both a physician and composer, created this framework for turning vibrational frequencies affiliated with amino acids into musical notes. Now, there's even a startup company that makes personal playlists. It's called Your DNA Song, so you could get Your DNA Soundtrack. There are two really standout, interesting quotes from interviews with Mark Temple. One is that he's very clear he wants to distinguish between sonification and musification. Remember, I actually said in an episode of 17 Karat K-Pop, I was talking about spiders because of Hoshi's release and how spider webs were sonified, basically. Sonificated, whatever you want to say. They were given sound. That's not the same as given a melody, a kind of music. Sonification is way less creative and pleasant to listen to. Musification is kind of sonification, but then you add instruments and add more that will make it slap. No one will go to a concert to listen to your sonification. They might go for the musification. The second thing I love about his interview quotes is how he frames this not as just about scientific discovery, but about just getting people excited about science, about learning. Because you could do amazing things once you realize the potential of what you're studying. You can make it fun. Marcus Bueller, an MIT engineer and composer, thinks molecules and music can even lead to creating new, previously impossible treatments. He's been using his MIT lab to explore sonification's potential. He's the one behind the whole spiderweb experiment I talked about. He's also actually created this gone sound in a way, kind of sounds like a gone, associated with the flame's vibrations. He's also reverse engineered stuff. For example, he converted something from Bach into proteins. So if we have the ability to turn music scientific as opposed to the science into music, we could create new medicine. We could create new proteins. We could create proteins that are just the same but improved versions of themselves. And his current goal is create a protein that would extend the shelf life of perishable foods. Dream big and you never know what you might come up with. Now let's talk about people who did not dream big enough. 
The LA Angels of Anaheim, they were so desperate to break their baseball losing streak that they decided they would try to break their streak by listening to Nickelback only. Assuming Nickelback would be good luck, so each player went up to bat as a different Nickelback song played, and only Nickelback. It didn't work. They lost 1-0 against the Boston Red Sox. But they tried to break their streak, thinking Nickelback would bring luck. I have no idea what they were thinking, other than the coach said, quote, I like Nickelback. The entire game, I got the songs in my head. It was neat for a while, unquote. Well, that's one way to get some interesting publicity. Who do you think, though? Honestly, let me know. If any artist could break a sports team's losing streak, whose music could do it? Who's got the magic in their music? Those scientists with the DNA music, probably. Some quick miscellaneous headlines that I found noteworthy lately in the music space. Deezer went public, trying to beat Apple Music and Spotify and stuff. It's a big popular company in Europe, one of the only big unicorns in the European tech world. It went public and its stock plummeted as a result. It's proving to be very hard to persuade people it can ever take on those streaming giants, but we'll see. Meanwhile, Spotify just bought Hurdle, the Wordle spin-off trivia game, a Guess the Song game, which won't be as fun as my Guess the K-Pop Song episode of 17 Karat K-Pop, but I digress. And lastly, Lollapalooza is coming to Mumbai, India. They also announced the dates for 2023's Lollapalooza, which will be in early August. That's all I got for you today. Thank you guys so much for listening, as always, and I'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!